0: and Father we pray that we would in your presence bow before your mercy and grace your holiness and power that Lord you would give to us these great and precious promises that we would embrace them by faith and experience what it is to lead a godly and holy life never being perfect like you, but in some sense being like you. So the world will know that you exist and that your invitation to come and find life is for them as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is what God says. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the God who exercises loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord, the Almighty. That's Jeremiah chapter 9, and it tells us that what God really gets excited about is when people know him on an intimate, personal, real basis. That what surpasses the might and the riches of And the wisdom that this world has, that this world calls great, is the simple but real relationship that a man can have with God, that a woman can have with the creator of the universe. Nothing, nothing is as great as that. And that's why the book of 2 Peter is so exciting, because Peter says amen to Jeremiah. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. This book that says knowing God is the heart of life. He starts out with this idea of knowing God in chapter 1 and ends this little epistle of 61 verses with this great verse, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not just theoretical knowledge, but experiential knowledge and the grace that dominates one's life who truly knows God. Since God's excited about these things and wants us to know him in a real and intimate way, it is my passion and burden for us as a church that we might grow in our practical and real knowledge of God. And I'm hoping that's what 2 Peter will do for us Let me read the first four verses of 2 Peter, chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and having escaped, and having escaped the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. We noticed last week that there are four things that God calls precious in the scripture. The first is found in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19. It's the blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 6 says the person of Christ is called precious. He's the precious cornerstone of and to everyone who believes this stone is precious peter says when we get to second peter chapter 1 we notice in verse 2 that faith is called precious it's precious because it's based on the righteousness of god and of christ that is given to us given to us when we don't deserve it and received by faith alone and that's why it's so precious. The word precious means something beyond calculation. It's something beyond worth. It's priceless. We esteem it as valuable and we delight in it. And the last thing that the scriptures call precious is the promise of God or the very great and precious promises of God. They are indeed priceless. It's interesting that this is one of Peter's favorite words. He is so excited about this great salvation we have because of the blood of Christ in the person of Christ received by faith in Christ that he now wants us to keep going. Once you've been saved, that's just the beginning. That's commencement day. Now life starts. And we want to focus on the precious promises of God this morning and look at their purpose To do that, I want you to notice in these first four verses that God has granted to us two wonderful gifts. In fact, the New American Standard Translation uses the word granted both in verse 3 and in verse 4 in place of the NIV given us. And I like the word granted because it emphasizes the fact that it's not based on our merit. It's gratuitous. It comes freely because of God's grace. It's nothing we've earned. It's been granted by a higher power and given to us. Two wonderful gifts God has granted to us. Number one, God has given to us everything we need to live a godly life. That's verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through a knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and virtue, by his excellence, his moral excellence. And the second thing, verse 4, he has granted to us his very great and precious promises, or as it says in the New King James, the exceedingly great and precious promises. The Greek word for great, most common word, you know it well, it's the word mega. But here it's mega plus it's the greatest and that's why in the english translation it's hard to get all of that in so the adjective is used exceedingly great beyond great we use the word great to the place where it's cheapened in our world that was a great movie he's a great basketball player i have a great god (laughs) those are a little different aren't they I mean, the movie might have been good, and the basketball player might be amazing compared to basketball players, but only God is great And the things of God. This is greater than great. God doesn't throw adjectives around loosely. The promises of God are exceedingly great. Now, let's look at both of those just for a moment. Everything we need to live a godly life, he has deposited within us. By conversion, our faith in Christ, through the divine nature, Christ comes to live in us. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us. We have within us all that we need. Totally sufficient. We don't need anything else. We have Christ, and Christ is all we need. And he's in us. That's the truth Peter wants these people to grasp just before he passes off the scene. Remember, Peter's writing this as his last will and testament. A few verses later, he's going to say, I'm about ready to leave this world. The Lord told me. And you can go back to John 21 and read that the Lord also told him how he was going to go out of this world. People will take you where you don't want to go and do things to you that you don't want them to do. And history tells us that Peter was crucified on a cross upside down. this is about ready to happen and Peter's writing now you know what what can I say to this group of Christians who are being persecuted and spread throughout the globe I know I'll remind them what they have in Christ so he says I want you to know that God has deposited within you everything you need to live a godly life think of it this way suppose someone came up to you and said you're poor I'm not I'm purchasing this safety deposit box for you at such and such a bank, and I have deposited in this box all the financial need, all the financial help you'll need for the rest of your life. Every contingency, health-related financial. Every need that is going to come your way by way of food and clothing. Every opportunity to experience what this life might offer. All of it! is covered by what I've put in this safety deposit box for you. Here's the box. Would that excite you? i get excited about that. Think of it in the spiritual realm. That's exactly what God has done. Everything you need to live a godly life, boom, it's there. All the resources, all the essentials. Now, he says in verse 4 that... um, I've also given you, granted to you, very great and precious promises so that through them you can participate in the divine nature. The Lord has said to us, I have given you something now in in a very practical and tangible way that will allow you to get what is on the inside outside that will allow you to allow the godliness within to flow through you and be demonstrated into the world. And it's called the precious promises of God. <laughs> they're great and they're precious. They're exceedingly great because they're God-given. You know, promise is only as good as the person who makes it, right? These are God-given promises. Why are they so great? Titus chapter 1, verse 2. The God who cannot lie has promised. Think of his moral character, his moral excellence, which is mentioned, by the way, the last part of verse 3. His goodness, his moral excellence. He cannot lie. Have you ever had someone make you a promise and you kind of thought they were lying? Take your car in to be worked on, it'll be done tomorrow. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> They, t- they give you that promise, and you come back, and I'm sorry, it's not ready. Haven't even started on it. And then you've got those people who make a promise, but they don't stay around long enough to fulfill the promise. They were well-intended. They weren't lying. They just are gone. I remember that TV commercial from the guy who was the uh, president of the men's warehouse, you know, that place that sells suits, men's warehouse, do you remember those commercials? I can't remember the guy's name. George, I think it was. And he would come on the commercial and he would say, I'm going to give you a great suit at a great price. I guarantee it. Remember that? The board canned him a couple years ago. He's nowhere around to fulfill the guarantee. If I go into the men's warehouse with a suit I bought and say, George guaranteed this, they would say, George is gone. Sorry. But God is eternal. He makes promises and he's around to keep them. And finally, God is almighty. He's almighty, which means he has the power to fulfill every promise he's made. Good people honestly make promises, and maybe they're staying around long enough to fulfill them, but they don't have the power to do it. You tell the kids, we're going to Disney World in the spring. Mark it down. I guarantee it. And then you lose your job. You weren't lying. You're still around. You don't have the power. God never lies. God is always here. God has all power. That's why these promises are so amazing. And he's granted them to you. Here are the promises of God. Isn't that great? First Kings 8. Not one word Solomon said when they dedicated the temple. Not one word has failed of all the good promises that God gave to his servant Moses. Not one word. And that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us all the promises of God in Christ are yea and amen. They're as good as done. You can bank on them, the wonderful promises of God. An old Puritan put it this way, the person of God may as well fail as any one of his promises." (laughs) And Warren Worsby, with great insight, said, as Christians, as believers, we don't live on explanations. We live on promises. I cannot explain all there is to explain about the Christian life or the person of God. There's mystery involved. It's not against reason. It's above reason. My intellect is not God-sized to take in all that is true. And so by faith, I embrace the mystery because I can't know it all. I simply have to believe that what God says is true. I don't live on explanations. I live on promises that come from a God who cannot lie, who's always there, who has all power. Warren Worsby goes on to say, no matter how dark the day, the light of God's promise is still shining. No matter how confusing the times, the character of God remains the same. And that's true for your situation right now. It's the promise of God that's going to help you out of your darkness. It's the promise of God that is going to lift you out of the morass in which you find yourself. It's the promise of God that will encourage your soul and your heart. It's the amazing, exceedingly great promises of Almighty God. and He just gives them to you. Just, they're yours. Trust me, the promises are yours. Now, the God who gives us these two great gifts has a goal in mind. He has two amazing outcomes from these two gifts. Let me just give them to you and we'll talk about them. Outcome number one, he wants us to escape the corruption that is in the world. Outcome number two, he wants us to experience the divine nature. Isn't that what verse 4 says? Through these, the glory and goodness of God, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that, purpose statement, through those promises, you can participate in the divine nature. And through the promises, you can escape the corruption that is in the world due to evil, wicked desires. Let's look at the idea of escaping the corruption that is in the world first. You see, you cannot participate in the divine nature until you have experienced this escape from the bonds and chains of sin and corruption that hold all of us. In fact, the original language perhaps would translate the end of verse 4 like this participate in the divine nature having escaped, already having escaped. And there's a sense in which that is true. You cannot participate in the divine nature and still live in corruption. And it's the precious promises that help us escape. You see... Again, getting some background. God creates the world good. It's perfect, right? And he puts Adam and Eve in this perfect place and tells them, don't eat of the forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve, the first parents of the human race. They're there to represent the whole human race, especially Adam. And when Adam sins, the Bible says, sin passes to the whole human race. And what's the consequence of sin? The wages of sin is death. And Romans 5 says, now sin through Adam, one man, has passed through all people, and with sin, death. And every person born after Adam is born in the bondage of sin and death. And now the world begins to take in the corruption of sin and death. Everything begins to die. Everything begins to corrupt. Moral corruption is prevalent in the world that came, was birthed through this Initial act of disobedience to God. I am born with a corrupt nature like my father Adam. And I prove it by the way I so easily sinned. No one had to teach me. I was a good sinner from the beginning. And if I want to participate in the divine nature, I have to escape this condition. So the Bible says Jesus was sent by the love of God to pay the penalty for our sin. He was sent to save us. That means to endure the penalty of death for us. And he died on the cross in our place. But he also wants to save us from the corruption that is in the world. He wants to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He wants to take us from this place of death to the place of joy. And we cannot experience the divine nature unless we escape. Think of the terminology. We need to disconnect. We need to to depart. There needs to be a separation, a detachment from the world. Why? Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These are two things that don't mix. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of pride, that's not from the Father. That's from the world. And the world is passing away, and everyone who hitches their wagon to it. But the, one who do, the, the people who do the will of God, they abide forever. James says, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy to God. There are certain things that don't mix. Oil and water don't mix. Republicans and Democrats usually don't mix. U of M, MSU, except in the church, (laughs) usually don't mix. A Christian and the world don't mix. Now, I'm not talking about the beautiful things in this world. I'm talking about the godless system that dominates the globe, that leads us to follow our own evil desires. Like 2 Peter chapter 3, people are scoffing at the promises of God. Where's the promise of his coming? And they do so because of their own evil desires. Evil desires make us selfish and want us to placate ourselves and ignore God and his word. Before there is participation in the divine nature, there must be liberation from the corruption of the world. I need to be released. I need to escape. Now, there's a sense in which the Christian is always going to be working at escaping the corruption that is in the world. But that's why Jesus died, to save us from the penalty of sin and to save us from the power of sin, to take us out of the corruption. That's the outcome from the precious promise of God. He wants us to escape. Suppose, suppose I want to fly in a plane I've got to leave the ground to soar in the air. That's not very profound, but it's true. If I love the earth, and some people do, I've got a relative who will not fly because they're afraid of flying. But it's almost like I love to be on terra firma and I'm not going to get into that plane and risk my life. Well, you'll never fly. You'll never see the beauties. You'll never go to distant places. You've got to leave the ground to soar in the air. How do you do it? Through a plane. It's the only way you can overcome those law, the law of gravity. The plane, that represents the promises of God. The earth is this world and this corruption, and soaring is participating in the divine nature. How do I get up there? I've got to leave here through the promises of God. I've got to embrace the promises. That's what verse 4 says. Promises like this Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a good promise. And when you trust Jesus Christ, he transfers you from the kingdom of darkness and corruption to the kingdom of light. That's a good promise. Have you ever embraced these promises? I mean, really embrace them? Are they yours? If not, no wonder you're still struggling with all the corruption that is in the world. I mean, believers do, yes, but you've got to escape that corruption to participate in the divine nature. And that's the second outcome. We are to be participants. The Greek word is koinonia. We are to share in divine life. You and I think of koinonia, we think of food, and we think of potluck suppers. And unfortunately, a potluck supper is not what Peter's talking about here when he uses the word koinonia. Shared life. We are to share life with God. Not that we become God, but that we begin to live godly. That we begin to manifest the characteristics of God who is in us. When you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says Christ comes to live in you. His Spirit makes your body a holy temple. And now the Spirit wants us to participate in the divine nature, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those are godly characteristics which God has planted in us by the Spirit. But he now wants to live those through us. How's it going to happen? How can I get what's in here out of here? Any idea? Verse four. That's why he gave you the promises. Through these, he's given us very great and precious promises so that, purpose statement, through the promises, I might share life with God. I might experience participating in the divine nature. That I will live a holy life as He called me to live, a life that is like God, that displays the characteristics of the one who is holy and righteous and merciful and loving. And the only way I can participate in that divine nature is through the promises of God. Did you know that God doesn't want you to be a spectator? He wants you to be a participant. He doesn't want you to sit on the sideline and say, Oh, that's great. You know, at South Church, we've got a lot of godly people. I'm so glad for this godly person and that godly person. And I am too. But God wants you to be godly. And this church won't be godly if you're not. God wants us to be participants. I love the the great quote that comes from the distinguished professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, Howie Hendricks. He once said this... You've perhaps heard it. The church is like a football game. There are 22 people on the field who are in desperate need of rest and 70,000 people in the stands who are in desperate need of exercise. That's the church. A few people doing everything and a lot of people sitting on the sidelines. But no, God says, I want you to participate. I want you to experience the height of life. I want you to know me. I want you to participate in the divine nature. And here's how you're going to do it. Take the promises of God that I have given to you and make them your own. Live them out. Love them. And your life will be transformed. Remember that deposit safety box that someone gave you with all the money you needed for every contingency and every experience and every challenge of life. Remember that? Imagine the person that giving that box to you and you're holding it and say, boy, this is great. Um, how do I get the money out? And they hand you a key and say, anytime you need it, here's the key. What's the key to participating in the divine nature? It's the promises of God. And it's making those promises yours by faith. And it's causing all that God has promised to be yours and experience. It's taking those promises and making them real. For example, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is the writing of the Apostle Paul. And it shouldn't amaze us that his theology is identical to Peter's because the author of the Bible is the Holy Spirit, even though the Spirit has used different human writers. Paul and Peter, the two leaders of the early church, right? The book of Acts can be outlined by the lives and ministries of these two individuals. The first 13 chap- 12 or 13 chapters, Peter is the central figure. And then from chapter 13 through chapter 28 in Acts Paul is the central and key leader of the early church. But their theology is the same, and I want you to notice it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, the word yoke literally refers to that bar, that part of the implement that joins two entities together. That's what a yoke is. We think of a yoke of oxen, right? And the yoke is that bar that connects two harnesses where you would put two oxen in to plow a field. Now, you don't put an ox on one side and a donkey on the other because they are unequally what? Yoked. Interestingly enough, the other way the Greek uses this term yoke is in a a scale The balance of scales. The yoke is the arm that holds two scales. And the goal is equal value or equal balance. But if you have something far more heavier than the other side, there is an unequal yoke. So Paul says, do not be unequally yoked. Very interesting Greek phrase. In the NIV, it just says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. But it talks about an unequal yoke. The Greek word is heteros, where we, in the English, use it perhaps most commonly with heterosexual. Heteros is not the same. And so heterosexual, two people together who are not the same. Homo is the same. Homosexual, homosexual. Two people coming together who are of the same sex. So heteros is used here. Don't be yoked together with someone who's not the same. And he says, you're a believer? Don't be yoked together. The word yoke is referring to a vital, life-giving partnership. Okay? For what does righteousness have to do with wickedness? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Baal, a false god? What do believers have in common with unbelievers? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? The analogy just goes on. These two are radically different. They're two things that don't mix. Now, I do need to say a word about verse 15 because I think this is an unfortunate translation in the NIV. It says, What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? The word common is too weak. The Greek word means a vital partnership. An association, a yoke that pulls together two equal parties. I have a lot in common with unbelievers. I really do. So do you. We breathe the same air. We work at jobs sometimes that are difficult. We live next to neighbors maybe that we don't like. We have financial problems and health problems. You have a lot in common with unbelievers. And that's why Paul, when he was talking about separating from, un- uh, from those who are sinning, said, now I'm not talking about unbelievers. This is 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 5. I'm not saying don't associate with the adulterers. I'm not saying don't associate with the wicked. To do that, you'd have to leave the world. And how are they going to hear the gospel if you don't associate with people who aren't believers? The light has to dispel the darkness. I think Christians need to establish rich and deep relationships with non-Christians so they can see your light. But you don't form a partnership, an unequal partnership with them, You don't enter into their world philosophy. You've left the corruption of the world, right? And the darkness. So he says in verse 16, you're the temple of the living God. God is in you. And God said, I will live with them and walk with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. That's a promise repeated at least three times in the Old Testament. Leviticus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Here's one of those prom- promises you need to embrace. God says, I will live with you. I will walk with you. I'll be your God and you'll be mine. You'll be my people. Verse 17, therefore come out from among them and be separate. This is escaping language, just like we noticed in 2 Peter. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Come out. I'll take you in. Here's a promise I hope many of you will embrace this week as your own and live in the light of it. Or like in James chapter 4, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. But there's escaping before there's taking in. You've got to come out before you go in. Many of you have seen the Broadway play or the movie, the musical Annie. It's the story of a girl who is in an orphanage and led by a cruel individual. But in the end, she's adopted by a rich guy. And they end up dancing and singing happily ever after. It's a moving story. Think of your story as being similar to that. You were once in corruption and you needed to escape. And God says, come out and I'll take you in. The God of all wealth adopts you. And what does he say? Verse 18, I'll be your father. You'll be my son. You'll be my daughter. And that's the promise of the God who has unlimited power, the Lord Almighty. That's all escape language. Now, Notice chapter 7, verse 1. And this is a very unfortunate chapter division. This is where it all comes together. Paul says, since we have these promises. What promises? Come out and I'll take you in. Since we have these promises, dear friend, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. That's escaping the corruption. And let us perfect holiness out of reverence for God, Did you notice in 2 Corinthians the very same thing that we saw in 2 Peter chapter 1? Experience the divine nature. Escape the corruption that is in the world. They're both there. And that's exactly what the Lord wants us to do. And the key is, chapter 7 verse 1, Having these promises, we say no to sin and yes to God. Having these promises, we can participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Many years ago, there was the chief crowfoot of the the Blackfoot Nation in Alberta, Canada. And he was approached by the Canadian Pacific Railroad Company asking permission to lay track across the Blackfoot Territory, and the chief gave them permission. In return, the Canadian Pacific Railroad Company gave the chief a lifetime pass to ride the railroad anytime he wanted for as long as he lived. He was so proud of that pass, he got a leather case and put the pass in the leather case, got a string hooked on the leather case, wore it around his neck for the rest of his life. And never once rode the train. God has given to us amazing promises. And as Christians, we write them out in beautiful calligraphy, put them in a gorgeous frame, hang them on our wall, and never take advantage of the promise. And if we do that, we will never experience what it is to know God and never experience what it is to live and participate with the divine nature. And we miss the greatest thing in life. Let's pray. O oh Lord, you have given to us great and precious promises. I pray that we will not miss them. I pray that we will not be acquainted with them but never experience them. Lord, I pray that this day we will take up the promises of God and make them our own so that we might escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires and truly participate in the divine nature for the glory of Christ we pray.